Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. For some reason, our bathroom has become a Ladybug Graveyard. <laughs> That's a cool band name, Ladybug Graveyard. That was my but thought. Really? Right? Is, oh my God. Yeah. Would, that be a, would that be a good punk band name or Ooh. maybe something more ambient? Dead Ladybugs. Dead, Dead Ladybugs is the punk version. Ladybug that has graveyard. to be a band name. There, there's no, be, there's yeah. no way that people have not thought of that before. I'm looking it up. <laughs> I have Spotify on my phone right now. What are what are the dead ladybugs like? Uh, I got dead ladybugs slash head of a bear, and then dead ladybugs with just in time for the song. Unless mm. dead ladybugs is the song and just in time is the band, that might be the case actually. So okay, no, okay, no band names. Hmm. Oh, okay. Put it, hmm. uh, put it down, it down. I guess reserve reserve the URL. Yes. <laughs> That'll be the name of our our punk project. I also had yes. another. Uh, I. Uh, idea too for like ghost ranch it was this uh Ooh. um site where they found all these dead uh Cilophysis dinosaurs oh that i huh, if that ranch. isn't taken that's that's a good like oh, dark good. like gothic cowboy band name gothic cowboy oh nice yeah. but yeah um as far as the ladybugs go we right. woke up the other morning and there's just like in the only bathroom in our house so mm-hmm. it's not like we just didn't notice. We just woke up one morning, the floor, just tons and tons of dead ladybugs. What? Yeah. And it's like, why just ladybugs? Like, what are they huh? attracted to in our bathroom? Why are they coming through? And then why are they why are they dying on the floor too? Maybe, maybe it's like a pilgrimage where in their life cycle they have to journey to their resting place, and that just so happens to be your bathroom. Wow, wow. I uh it's more poetic I, that way. I guess so. We'll have to put some kind of uh marker, I guess, there in remembrance of all the ladybugs <laughs> oh that God. died the... on my bathroom floor. <laughs> Maybe we'll just have to put uh black spots, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my god. That's so crazy though. Like mm-hmm. all jokes aside, that's actually kind of horrifying to just wake up to. Yeah, it, it's a weird omen. <laughs> Speaking of uh, omens, if you'll follow me here, uh, Joe, and and audience, we are going to travel into the Mm. Hall of Invalid Dinosaurs here today at the Uncanny County Museum. Look Mm. at all of these dinosaurs that don't exist. They got canceled. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Stiggy Moloch got canceled. You did not want to see his Twitter. So this is an interesting topic in terms, just in sort of the history of science. And it's Mm -hmm. something that we've talked a bit about before where science gets things wrong. And then I guess the, the, uh, the burden is then on science to justify why they are correct this time or more correct or why the current, uh, findings, uh, reflect that because Mm. something like paleontology 
uh, when you get into the nitty gritty of it, if you do not have a, a passing knowledge of how those scientists operate or how science in general operates, right. it kind of just seems like a bunch of people arguing about things that don't really matter. <laughs> and <laughs> why are you, why, I why did you laugh? This, this totally, this totally matters. It to matters. Get, the, really get it right for, for the dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it starts to sound a bit weird. It's like, what do you mean the dinosaur doesn't exist? You know, what what do yeah. we mean by that? And mm. um, the short answer is that it turns out we discovered it twice. Uh, we discovered it ah. once, named it, found another animal, uh, named it, and then it turns out they were the same thing. And if you think about this for dinosaurs, it kind of makes sense, you know, um, we very, very rarely uh, find complete specimens of, you know, a complete animal, especially past a certain size. Uh, you know, it's it's more difficult to find a complete uh, Tyrannosaurus skeleton versus, you know, a uh, uh, an Archaeopteryx. Mm -hmm. um, something, you know, much smaller, sort of raven-sized. It can all kind of just get smushed into one rock. A T-Rex, you know you you typically don't find that much uh of them and then you know when you do it's it's a really big deal uh right some points to the t-rex um now uh another thing that can happen is something that we were talking about back when we were talking about the evolution of cats which is uh you can find one species and then it's also difficult to tell without seeing these things with the skin on them that it's another species mm, uh right to, to even just go back to the example of archaeopteryx often called the first bird uh but that's not really a a a valid nickname but it sort of has stuck for archaeopteryx uh for all of uh these years archaeopteryx is essentially a dinosaur that has pretty developed wings you know it, it has the huh. long stiff tail uh, is covered in feathers, has the claws on its hands and feet, has teeth, but has wings. And so a lot of people uh, have sort of labeled it as this, this missing link between dinosaurs and birds. And missing links aren't really a thing in an evolutionary sense. I, this is a species that is showing uh, a transition along the way to birds, but it is, you know, an animal in its own right. It is not something that uh, is this dividing line. Um, and then we can even get into more granular ideas of what uh, of what even what even constitutes the line between birds and dinosaurs. Oh, I'm um, excited! But to go back to that example, mm -hmm. uh, when be because Archaeopteryx's skeleton minus the wings, it really does look like a another uh manny raptor dinosaur a little raptor animal which had been understood as as a thing that paleontologists could find e even when it was first discovered um but it wasn't until later when uh the uh the extremely famous uh london and berlin specimens were found that you had these beautifully preserved wings uh, in the limestone. And th this is why its species name is lithographia. Uh, oh. Because it looks like a lithograph, the way 
the uh, the feathers are just beautifully, beautifully preserved in the uh, um, in the limestone. And uh, that's this is, you know, this uh, suddenly you could differentiate it because, oh, this isn't just like any other uh, little dromaeosaur or manny raptor dinosaur. This thing has wings on those Mm. arms uh and and pretty developed wings you know it it at the very least could glide you know powered flight is is a whole other debate for archaeopteryx that i i think is still ongoing uh (laughs) some say it might still go on forever (laughs) (laughs) until we get (laughs) until we see it flying i guess i Uh, guess yeah mm -hmm. but you you understand the the idea that Without the feathers, we would have thought this was just another little raptor dinosaur, and right, at the time, right. they would not necessarily have been reconstructed with feathers. That that would, um, even though there was some recognition that dinosaurs could be related to birds, um, there was uh, not yet the uh, impulse to reconstruct predatory dinosaurs with feathers the way there is now. Mm, okay, so because of that, there became this, like, kind of like a looking back at everything and be like hold on we probably should go and reinvestigate some of these things just in case yeah like if you found a lion skeleton and then a tiger skeleton you wouldn't necessarily know that they right. look so different that their behaviors are incredibly different they're with, with a right. couple of key differences their skeletons are almost identical uh you know tigers right. just, just being bigger no um, can can mm-hmm. i ask you about that too like how mm-hmm. How do paleontologists distinguish these, like in in terms of like which fossil would be which, in, if in cases that are so similar to that, like is that something that would have been, you know, in the past, kind of messed up a lot, and now today we're sort of trying to they're trying to figure it mm-hmm. out and and work on that, or how does right. that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a it's a great question, and it's something that isn't all without DNA is really difficult to answer with a lot of dinosaurs. Gotcha. What you're going off of is something called a type specimen or a holotype. Oh, um, okay. Now, when an animal is first discovered and scientifically described and named in a scientific paper, and that paper is published in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, there will be certain characteristics, measurements, criteria based on that animal that will set the standard for the species. Almost like like breed standard for dogs. Like in order for the dog to be considered uh, a Boston Terrier, it must meet these breed standards. Now, gotcha. there are issues there because... Just like with all animals, there are variants within individuals. Um, And the line of what exactly a species is, is pretty blurry. Mm. Uh, You know, historically, and and I think to some extent, even now, there's there's a general idea of a species isn't, you know, this animal that only reproduces with other members of its species, Um, at least at least in the case of animals. Um, but you know, then why limit it to animals? Like what about, uh, animals and other organisms that reproduce asexually? Uh, what about, uh, different, uh, types of animals and plants that can interbreed? What do you make of those? And you start to understand that 
species is kind of this, even though it, it is a thing, it's not a completely made up concept. It is still a construct. It's this hazy halo around this certain population of organisms that links them together because they are uh, interacting with each other, forming colonies together, uh, interbreeding with each other. Um, but there is this periphery of change mm. that is in constant motion. So uh, if you were going to, because within any population, there are, there are differences of individuals. And just because an individual differs uh, it does not mean it is no longer a member of that species. So, you know, if there was something, if there was some evolutionary pressure that suddenly took place that only left-handed human beings could reproduce, um, the evolutionary pressure would select for left-handed people to take over the world, which uh, they, they have been trying to do through our great musicians uh, for decades. Uh <laughs> And if you can help us right now, we can stop oh these darn lefties. <laughs> wow, this is not where I thought that was going to go. Okay. <laughs> what if you showed up, you were like some MAGA Republican. You showed up somewhere that was like, you know, we need to, uh, we, we need to root out the lefties. And it turns out it was an anti-left-handed people uh, convention. <laughs> oh my God. They were like. Well, maybe they'd be into that because of like the left hand being the devil or whatever. Oh, right. Yeah. No, my, my, my grandmother had her hand tied behind her back. Oh, my God. Hand. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. That's brutal. Right. Yeah. She had to learn with her right hand. Her and God. Ringo Starr. Yeah. Jeez. Mm hmm. Um, <laughs> so but if that pressure were to take place, humans would evolution would take place and select for left handedness the human race would evolve in that way. Um, mm. If right-handed people were no longer able to have as many uh, successful offspring. But would you say then that all of those right-handed people were not human or were, were not a member of our species? And the answer would be no. Uh, but right. then where along that, you know, once you get to human beings that, I, I I don't know, like suddenly can breathe underwater or something. Some some crazy far distant, far flung mm. evolutionary pressure that could show up. At what point do you say, okay, that's a different species now? You look at our own history and you say, was it, uh, is it cranium size? Is it our proportions? You know, gotcha, when do you, when gotcha. when are you digging and it stops being archaeology and it starts being uh, paleoanthropology? Uh, oh. You know, when you're you're measuring the proportions of the skull and the arms, the hands and the feet, and you're like, OK, this stops being uh, Homo erectus and, uh, you know, starts being uh, sapiens or Neanderthal. Um, uh, OK, so that's so, when it starts yeah. to separate in terms of like a different yeah. species. Yeah. And for human beings, we have the advantage of there being DNA and, you know, we live in a time now where we can even look at how our ancestors interbred with other species of humans. Right, uh, right. And and even how much that has changed in the last couple of decades. In the last couple of years, our, our understanding that pretty much all modern human populations have at least some Neanderthal or Denisovan DNA in them, like mm -hmm. this is 
pretty wild stuff that, but I think it illustrates that the definition of a species is somewhat hazy, that these human populations were distinct, but not incapable of um, uh, interbreeding and also not um, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, it's hard to tell whether or not they recognized each other as uh, separate species. There's pretty famously uh, a whale that um, is isolated from a lot of other whales because its song is at a different frequency than other members of its species. So it is isolated. Um, And because uh, there's animals like birds and whales that can isolate themselves just based on their their singing patterns uh, being different than other animals that they would be biologically compatible with. um, If there is some sort of behavioral difference, then they will not interbreed. This is why even though they can interbreed, why wolves and coyotes typically don't, because they have almost a language barrier. Uh, They have have social structures and hierarchies that um, are somewhat incompatible with each other. Uh, So they they will not uh, interbreed uh, typically in the wild. Hmm. Uh, Under normal circumstances, there are like lots of instances of them in proximity to humans, interestingly, interbreeding oh um huh that's yeah probably because of a a destruction of their social their very important social relationships right that'll do it yes gosh yeah and why dogs on occasion can interbreed with wolves it's oh so there's a million different things that don't necessarily show up in bones that could differentiate a different species so for dinosaurs uh, and and other long, long extinct animals, you really have to be going off of very specific measurements of the bone and geography. Uh, gotcha. And so what you're looking for is an animal that is shaped like this in this location in this time period. If you find something that's 10 million years earlier uh, or something that... Uh, something that came at a different point in the history of the Mesozoic or something that's in a different geography, you can make a case for those animals being different species. Um, but now when we talk about species, what ex- what, what, what is this? What is this uh, categorization system? Where does it come from? And it comes from a guy named Carl Linnaeus or Carlos Linnaeus, uh, as some people might know him. Uh, He was a Swedish scientist, uh, lived 1707 to 1778. This is, you know, primetime Enlightenment Europe. Mm. Um, As I mentioned, he was Swedish. His uh, father became the first uh, person in their lineage to adopt a last name uh, when he went to uh, uh, when he went to university. Um, So. Previously, because they were Swedish, they had the Scandinavian naming convention. Uh, for instance, Carl's father was named Nicholas Ingmarsson. Uh, I, I believe I'm. I believe that's that's it. Uh, or Nils. Yeah. He also went by Nils, which I like. Nils. Nils. Nice. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, 
uh, Nicholas becomes rector after his father died. They they came from a, a you know, not, they weren't necessarily uh, particularly well-to-do people, but there were quite a few people in their lineage that were priests um, or members of the clergy, but a lot okay. of peasants too. Um, mm. But uh, so Nicholas adopts the last name of Lynn after the linden tree that grows in their backyard. So the, uh, the, 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 the Swedish word gets Latinized to Linnaeus. Oh. So they're they essentially they adopted this last name of of the linden tree. Cool. Uh, when he goes to uh, study, uh, and he is uh, the the father Nicholas uh, Ingmarson now Linnaeus was himself an amateur botanist uh, and made his living as a Lutheran minister. Hmm. Okay. So along with him being an amateur uh, botanist, his son Carl loves uh, plants as well. And it's even said that as a child, this was the way to make him happy, was to give him a flower or a plant if he was Imagine upset. That. <laughs> <laughs> Kids today. <laughs> and their cell phones. We were just happy with a plant, you know? That would make you laugh for days. Yeah, they gave him a patch of dirt where he could grow his own <laughs> plants. This is true. <laughs> I love um, that. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, living in the Swedish countryside. Um, God. Yeah, so uh, Carl shows an interest in science, and despite not immediately being particularly disciplined as a student, he shows he shows a lot of promise, and, you know, his father pushes him to, uh, you know, go into school, and he does. He does very well. Um and uh, completes, I guess, kind of the equivalent of his his undergraduate studies. Uh, okay, nice. At in uh, in Sweden, but then, as was the style at the time, he wants to go to the Netherlands for his doctorate. Mm. Uh, there's sort of hopes of him being a physician, um, and the Netherlands is the place to go uh, to do this to go study with the Dutch uh, because they're just so renowned at the time for their. Uh, scientific uh, understandings, and especially their natural history uh, understanding. So this this is kind of perfect for him. What ends up happening is him and his friend uh, Klaus Sonberg oh. stop in Hamburg in 1735 <laughs> on their way to the Netherlands, and they run into the mayor of the town. And the mayor is super excited because Carl is already kind of uh, a known quantity as this rising star naturalist. Hmm. And the mayor is really excited to show him a specimen that he has. And I, I, I feel like we know this, right? Like you walk yeah. to a, a relative's house that you don't know very well. And they're like, you like <laughs> this thing here's this kind of related thing to that like trying to yeah. relate to you <laughs> yeah 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 oh man mm -hmm. yeah uh so he shows him the hamburg hydra which was huh. noteworthy enough that albertus seba had actually illustrated it in his uh cabinet of curiosities uh in oh. his plates there is uh, a fairly famous illustration of it and it was hyped up as as a real hydra, as sort of this mythical 
little beast that had been discovered and it even had some right. local renown as like this mm. this evil entity that showed that uh <laughs> you, you know that that the monsters really did exist in the world right. and that satan was lurking around the corner right you you know that mayor was hyping him up the whole way too <laughs> He's like, you're gonna love this. Like, you're, right. they don't have this in Sweden. This is gonna be crazy. You gotta wait and come <laughs> see this thing. <laughs> yeah, you guys just have trolls. We have yeah. Hydra. Yeah, we have we have real biblical things here. You know. Yes. Yes. Oh, um. So he goes and shows him to him, and wouldn't you know it, Carl picks up uh, that this may not be real. Really? <laughs> what gave that away? So Carl quickly discovers that it is actually made from uh, cobbled together parts of weasels and snakes. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that it's it's not real. Uh, and he is sort of warned like, hey, maybe don't mention this because the mayor is actually trying to sell this for a lot of money. Oh, no. um, and Carl suddenly... goes against this oh, and no. publishes oh, his no, findings Carl. and they are forced to flee Hamburg. Oh, <laughs> it's not funny. It's actually sad. But oh, my God. I mean, Carl, <laughs> why did you I... get kicked out of town? Uh, I accidentally tried to tell the truth and they hated me for it. I mean, mm. he could have just went along to get them the money. Mm. Uh, this is why sometimes I feel like going along with things and like just being like, yeah, I'll just go see this random person's Hydra in their room. Mm-hmm. Maybe he shouldn't have accepted that side quest. Maybe. There's a Maybe. story in Bruce Springsteen's autobiography where he goes on a trip with his dad and they are told they're going to go see uh, a zebra and it turns out it's a donkey with stripes painted on it. Oh, yeah. that's... And he's yeah. not even a he's not even a biologist. <laughs> and he's like, I don't think that's a zebra. I'm no biologist, but I don't think that's a zebra. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so he got he now was he with Sonberg? So yes. so okay, so the Sonberg got ran out of Hamburg. There's a lot of Bergs at play here. Yeah, so I'm just trying to make sure I keep there are a lot of northern European names that uh I've <laughs> had to bumble through. Um Yes, they yeah, so you and your friend, like I mean, I guess uh, I guess something rough. like this could happen where the the two of us could find ourselves somewhere and I could maybe start. I've definitely been I mean, in situations <laughs> where people have a fossil they want to show me. And I definitely mm. told people very bluntly as a child that they weren't real. Oh, or that, no. Or that, or that it was it's a rock. <laughs> oh man oh no i mean hey you know what sometimes it's better to be brutally honest we have been run out of stores before though so that's as close as we've gone so far like that one italian store that was kind of like a museum of curiosities Mm. which was yeah never gonna forget that one (laughs) um (laughs) um yeah so so i imagine it's that times yeah you you kind you kind of know what this is like um sure (laughs) Yeah, so, but uh, the success actually just kind of picks up from there, because in 1735, oh. he uh, publishes Sistema Natura, which kind of uh, sets the stage for his new classification system for plants, and then uh, all 
life forms from there on. Oh. Uh, he follows it up uh, later with Philosophia Botanica uh, in 1751, then Nutrix Noveria. Uh, hmm. Oh, sorry, Noverca in oh. 1752. He basically just starts building and building on his uh, works, and what starts as a way to categorize plants, like I said, becomes a way to categorize any living thing in nested hierarchy. Uh, uh now are are you kind of familiar with this concept? Um maybe? I actually okay. don't know. So, ki- you know, kids pick candy over fancy green salads. What? <laughs> is this like is this like a piano scale I'm unfamiliar with? What yes, this yeah, this is this Okay, is, same this deal. Is, this is the every good boy does fine of um of biology, which is kingdom, yeah. phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Okay, I know those words. I got that. Yes. So okay. <laughs> the nested hierarchy is interesting because it... Um, and remember, this is in the mid-1700s. There isn't yet uh, the concept of uh, evolution. Uh, and in fact, Linnaeus even runs into some controversy with this because... You know, this is a system that humans can fit into, uh, not as this separate entity made in God's image. Uh, uh, so what this means is if you go as specific as to define something that is a species, that is a type of organism that you can recognize as distinct from other kinds of organisms, but has... Uh, a, a population of related individuals, you know, a, a, a population of swans, of squirrels, of Venus flytraps mm-hmm. um, that are that, that can be defined and, and have a specific morphology. They are still related to other things that are within the higher groupings. So uh, if you were to take humans, for instance, we are in the kingdom Animalia, phylum Chordata, we have a backbone. Mammalia, we are mammals, that's the class. Order, we are primates. Family, we are hominids. Genus, Homo, species, sapien. And if you want to be really specific, we are Homo sapiens sapiens, a subspecies of Homo sapiens. Um, oh. And there are also a, a million other little, uh, there are suborders, there are other distinctions that have uh that that also are relevant in this classification system but that's the core of it that Linnaeus defined and it's pretty much held up ever since so what this means the nested hierarchy is it means that we are uh everything else that falls under the class mammalia which actually Linnaeus was instrumental in defining he was one of the first um people to uh really put down a definition as to what a mammal was uh interesting so this is what makes us related to uh mice and shrews and elephants and rhinos and kangaroos we are all mammals uh based on the mothers having uh mammary glands to feed their young and then you know other other features as well, but that that was sort of the the defining characteristic. Interesting. I was wondering where we got that from. Yes. Huh. Yes. Um. So 
because of this nested hierarchy, it, it's like a nesting doll. Everything that's, as you get more and more specific, smaller and smaller, there is a relationship, there's a, a proximity of relationship to the uh, the nearest, uh, uh, largest or smaller category that you fit into. Um, so if you would have to go back to Chordata for us to share something with, you know, a dinosaur, which sits under Reptilia as its uh, class, but it is part of okay. the same phylum and kingdom as us. Interesting. Uh, and you can remember that by kids pick candy over fancy green salads. You know, that is sounding familiar now that I think about it. <laughs> mm. Yes. Um, okay. But uh, because of the controversy at the time, again, this is, you know, a hundred no, this is over a hundred years yeah. before uh, Origin of the Species. Uh, he has to add an extra little thing in there into a later edition of Systema. Uh, sorry, he has to add a later clarification in the uh, a later edition of Systema Natura uh, of a, another clarification on humans that we are anthropomorpha, that we are this. Uh, group that you could still call us primates, but we're still our own thing. There, that that mm. there's something that some extra bit of language to distance us from uh, other apes, right? Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I guess that that human arrogance kind of wins again, right? Where it's right. like we need to be. We're better than this. We're not animals. <laughs> we are man made in God's image, and it's exactly, like exactly, exactly. Okay. Yay. Um, oh, but, you know, it's only another century or so away from uh, a greater understanding of this. And then we solved mm. it and never had any arguments no. about the validity of biology ever again. Never again. Never again. That's why we're in the future world here. Yes. Oh, um, yes. So <laughs> uh, th this surprisingly has still held up despite... The, our our now understanding of evolution and DNA, all of this stuff that was so far outside of the world of the mid seventeen hundreds, mm. uh, it it has held up as as a as yeah. a valid classification system um, that we still use today. It is worth remarking that this is you know a a construct of Western science, but it does help us organize things. The difficulty is with our more broad understanding of science now, our less rigid definition of a species, what do you do with something that has kind of a very rigid stratified structure when we're, when, when we have a, kind of a different understanding of species now, like, do you consider all of the bacteria that are necessary for a human being to be alive? Like we can't live without those. Is that a part of us? Is that, do you oh. consider that part of the stock human being, all of the other organisms that are, that, that make it possible for us to eat things? That's a really good point. Like with like gut bacteria and stuff, would that come into play as like a, um, 
not like like a what do you call that like codependent species or something possibly or like where it's required it's definitely a form of it's a symbiotic relationship that's it it, yeah it is it is a kind of mutualism um Hmm. but it uh it does sort of uh move out of the area of thinking of species as these separate pillars when they're all really interconnected um and it it would be interesting to think about if this uh nesting doll idea hadn't come about like and but we still uh got to we still got this science at some point we still understood evolution and uh dna how would we you know sort of interpret this idea of a species it's just an interesting kind of thought experiment for sure um but then this brings us back to our hall of invalid dinosaurs. Um, right. One thing that's also worth noting that I, I thought was kind of funny is, so C- Carl Linnaeus, you know, he changes his name to reflect his naming convention, binomial nomenclature. Every species gets two names, a genus and a species. Uh, he decides to take the liberty of naming Homo sapiens and naming himself as the type specimen. Wait, what? What do you mean? <laughs> so remember earlier when I said the first the the first individual discovered gets to be the type specimen, the the uh, the, right, the one right. that is referenced. He names himself as the type specimen, as the oh my Homo God. sapiens. So, <laughs> so Carl Linnaeus is the Homo sapien. In the, yeah, in the he hit was film. he was the most studied human of of his work. <laughs> You know, you know what? That's a power move. If he had come around like 200 years later, he would have mm. known that none of us really know our. Ah, uh, yeah. He'd be maybe he would have gone existential. It was a little too late on that. Yeah. Or too early, I guess. So this, uh, you know, all, all of this aside, this system is brings us to how we name dinosaurs now. This brings us to our invalid dinosaurs. Now, some of these are actually kind of what you would almost think of as classic dinosaurs, like the, mm. the original um, it, it, sort of uh, iconic dinosaurs that one might <laughs> think of. There's uh, Anatotitan among Whoa, them. Whoa. Cool yeah, name. which has a great name. That's a great Giant name. Giant duck. Sick. That is so <laughs> sick. Oh, my God. Um, But... More recent study has actually shown that Anatotitan might not actually be its own species, and that it's oh. actually just a more southern uh, Edmontosaurus. Oh. So hmm. we formerly had this uh, giant duck-billed dinosaur that we recognized in the American West, but it turns out the uh, variety farther north in Canada was technically named first. So it gets the priority for naming. Uh, so with that, like, is this one of those things where there could have, I mean, maybe there was, maybe there isn't. It seems like what you're getting at where there were the same species found in different areas of the globe, but like potentially before people could talk with each other, they could have been discovered, um, you know, already. Like, and essentially you'd be creating duplicates mm. Where if it's like, if you have one, like if you're in, uh, you know, Northern Europe and you're discovering a dinosaur fossil and it's like you found one and then you're in a different area 
I don't, I don't know how far out they go. So, you know, right. just bear with me here, everybody who's right. listening. But like, <laughs> you know, that if, you, if you're finding a species of something, it doesn't have to be dinosaurs, it can be any animal, let's say, and you found the two of the same thing or similar in the same place and they were named, you know, different things. Right. How does that get worked out? Like, is it just whoever named that first wins, essentially? Right. The, this is the game of paleontology is whoever <laughs> named it first gets the priority. Um, okay. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah, whoever published on it first. Now, this is an interesting issue, especially when you go back in time and news travels, uh, you know, not as quickly as it does now. But even in the 20th century, uh, I read this book called Resurrecting the Shark uh, by Susan Ewing. And one of the things that she talks about through the book um, were people uh, on either side of the Iron Curtain working on helicoprion fossils, uh, the the shark oh. with a buzzsaw. Yeah, buzzsaw shark. Yes, chainsaw shark. <laughs> chainsaw shark, that's it, yeah. Yes, Sharknado. Mm. And they didn't really get to compare notes on helicoprion after the fall of the Soviet Union. So uh, they were making parallel discoveries, uh, but there was a lot of uh, information that they were able to actually draw conclusions from once they were actually able to collaborate and communicate more directly with each other. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so... This stuff does happen, you know, kind of innocently uh, enough. You know, you can't be everywhere at once. You can't look at every single fossil. And when you publish on something, uh, you know, the people reviewing the article are expected to, you know, do their due diligence. And so are you. But, you know, if you missed something, because there's so many, you know, there's so much material out there. Uh, if you miss something, especially in the pre-search engine age, you could very easily name the same animal twice. Mm. Yeah. And I think with Anata Titan, there was enough of a geographic difference that, you know, this is an animal. And I and I believe Hillary even spoke a little bit about this, the controversy of um, the uh, uh, just how how many different species of hadrosaur dinosaurs there were on the North American continent because we find kind of the same shaped animal everywhere and it would it does kind of look like all one species but we find them so far apart you want to imagine they're different species right yeah okay so anata titan gets trumped uh for uh edmontosaurus and loses its much cooler name uh, yeah, this I think it should be based on how cool it sounds. Obviously, not the correct yeah. Title. Well, yeah, I mean, T Rex was almost called Massaspondylus. I mean, that does not roll. Come on, now that doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah, I know T Rex is overrated, but still, come on, <laughs> that's such a cool name. Yes, um, but there are uh, you know other animals uh, that uh, fall into this. There's uh, Mojo Ceratops, which. <sighs> unfortunately has been now lumped together with chasmosaurus uh -huh. oh, okay yeah uh, but mojo lost its mojo, lost its mojo. God, that that would be great um great name to have um yeah. in terms of cringier names there's oh, no. dracorex hogwartsia 
No way. That's not yeah. real. Yes. That's a, I oh my god. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, um Dracorex Hogwartsia thankfully has uh been pretty uh it, it's it, the going theory is that they're pretty sure this is a juvenile uh Pachycephalosaurus. Mm. Um a, one of the dome-headed dinosaurs. Gotcha. And mainly because they don't really have a growth pattern. They don't have any hatchling uh, pachycephalosaurs mm-hmm. uh, the way that we do for like triceratops or protoceratops where we can watch the head change. Um, Dracorex has this very spiky horned head with a flat top to it. And then the adult or what we assume is the adult pachycephalosaurus has this very domed head with nubs kind of all around Mm -hmm. uh it almost like uh it looks kind of like larry david you know it's like (laughs) it's bald on top kind of bushy on the sides right oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and um god if they find another pachycephalosaurus they really should name it after larry david i yes that would be (laughs) fantastic oh my gosh (laughs) um but yes so dracorex hogwartsia or (sighs) the dragon king of hogwarts (laughs) um unfortunately is no more including uh stiggy moloch which was uh slightly cooler that was Uh. the um devil of the river sticks uh, Can't but, we just call it that? Can't we just call it Devil <laughs> of the Rivers? Why? Uh, it is you, now uh, probably it. It is now cons- widely considered a juvenile of Pachycephalosaurus. Mm, um, okay, but it is interesting. They have very different heads, right. but they're all found in the same locality, same time period. Hmm. It just seems like they probably are. The science seems to indicate these are just juveniles uh, of Pachycephalosaurus. Gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Okay. That they, that they develop the dome head later in life or, you know, maybe upon uh, reaching a certain level of maturity. Ah, okay. Yeah. So there's a few of these where they unfortunately get these downgraded names. Uh, there's one animal uh, called Drinker, uh, named after uh, Edward Drinker Cope. It's just called uh, Drinker? It's just called, like, spelled the same and everything. Just, it's called Drinker. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, but we, we scrapped that one, because not very uh, many uh, not... remains. Uh, <laughs> it, it, actually, it's it's not that we didn't have that many uh, remains. It just seems to be that people have kind of abandoned it as a, oh. uh, as a species. People don't really publish articles mentioning it anymore right they, they were it getting just, confused with the name right because they kept saying the drinker and they were like who the guy down the at the bar i mean come on everybody's here it does kind of sound like this legend the drinker <laughs> the drinker yeah yeah um but it is it just kind of seems to be some type of generic hypsilodont dinosaur uh maybe in the future people will resurrect it do a better job of describing it because otherwise no one seems to kind of uh uh, figure out what it is. But speaking of Edward Drinker Cope, that brings us to another animal that's no longer considered uh, valid uh, called Othnelia, mm. uh, named after Othnelia Charles Marsh. Now, 
Othniel Charles Marsh was an American paleontologist, and he's somewhat infamous for his rivalry with Edward Drinker Cope uh, in what oh. is often called the Bone Wars, where they were sort of in this race to see who could name more dinosaurs. Uh, now, Marsh was a professor at Yale, uh, and... In 1879, he discovers maybe one of the most famous dinosaurs of all time, maybe the most famous dinosaur of all time, Brontosaurus, mm. uh, and names it uh, Brontosaurus as the genus, Excelsus as the species. Now, that's a dinosaur name. That is very cool. Yes. And the publication is kind of rushed because, again, he's trying to beat Cope. Uh, and Marsh identifies this long-necked dinosaur, very, very large, you know, names it Brontosaurus because it's the thunder lizard. It, um, Excellent. You know, it Excellent, shook man. the ground as it walked. Um, in 1877, he had discovered some other animals uh, similar uh, to this uh, that he wants to group it with. Uh, and one of these species is called Apatosaurus. Um, and... There's uh, a couple different species um, that uh, him and others go on to name, but there is already this concept as early as the 1870s uh, or a couple years earlier of this animal called Apatosaurus. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as you notice with the dates, it predates Brontosaurus by two years. The animals are quite similar. The, the publication gets out and uh, Marsh sort of has his day, you know, of uh, naming all of these uh, very, very large, very impressive American dinosaurs. And what sort of immediately starts to happen is there, by 1880, there's a couple of species where people are already, right, already like, okay, these are probably synonymous. These are, I, I we think you named the same animal twice. Oh, so, no. yeah. Uh, but Marsh is still pretty defensive about this and actually uh, wants to have a full mount of this animal, which is incomplete. What's noteworthy, it is postcranially uh, there. It, they do not have a skull for this animal. Oh, no. Okay. Um, and Marsh basically says, find me a sauropod skull that we can put on this mount. Like just any? Yes, a oh uh, another okay. paleontologist named uh, Marshall P. Felch in 1883 finds him a skull. Uh, oh, my God. Okay. And it's kind of noteworthy. It has these very weird, high, uh, forward-facing nostrils. Uh, and you may even actually recognize this on older reconstructions of Brontosaurus. Uh, or these types of animals where they have like almost this snorkel like um, nostrils that sit very high on the head. Uh, and it more than likely was actually a Brachiosaurus skull. Um, but Marsh doesn't really oh. care. He fast forwards it and has this reconstruction put on uh, his his full skeleton. He kind of has to make up some parts of the tail. We know that was incorrect. Uh, but basically, he has his dinosaur, this very impressive, round-headed dinosaur. Right. But things are already starting to fall apart. In 1901, Elmer Riggs from the Field Museum points out these animals are not different enough uh, mm. and, and publishes on this. 
1905, the, um, uh, the AMNH, the American uh, uh, Museum of Natural History in New York, uh, finds a very complete brontosaurus, uh, and they want to mount it. Uh, this is... Uh, this is, you know, a very impressive specimen that they want for the museum. They actually uh, combine it with three other individuals from this species to uh, build it out, but they still need a skull. There are right. uh, other paleontologists that are pointing out that these animals uh, are probably very similar to a diplodocus, another sauropod that has been described uh, which has this very elongated skull for grazing. Um, but Marsh doesn't like it. He doesn't like oh. the skull. He's like, <laughs> he, he he wants a, a robust, blocky skull for his big animal. It's a true artist, Zach. Yes. He really wants to make, make the image. Science was more like art back then. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Yeah, so oh Marsh, Marsh basically commissions this. <laughs> commissions the skull. And... Oh um, they find uh, a, another skull and, uh, and, and basically reconstruct a skull for the Brontosaurus mount. Uh, it is now widely understood that this skull actually belonged to Camarasaurus, a very different type of sauropod, but it has the blocky skull that Marsh wanted. Um, and in uh, 1909, uh, they are still sort of arguing about this. Uh, a paleontologist named William Holland uh, is kind of in competition with Henry Osborne, who is the head at the AMNH. He, he maintains that the, that the skull should be, resemble the Diplodocus more, uh, but then he dies in 1934 and they put the wrong, and they, they put the skull that they really wanted on anyways. Osborne oh gets God. Marsh's uh, blocky skull. Uh you know, uh, a this this sort of goes back and forth, but basically it's settled, and it's why in the public's imagination it it's sort of solidified as this is the look of Brontosaurus. Uh, but right. by the nineteen seventies, Riggs's work is revisited, and people are like, these animals are too similar. Something's got to be done. Uh, so they basically take uh, a lot of the different Apatosaurus uh, and Brontosaurus species and start to uh, put them all into uh, just a couple of species, Apatosaurus ajax and Apatosaurus excelsus. Um, okay. And because of the ICZN rules, the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, Apatosaurus was named first. It gets priority. So now we have the different species of Apatosaurus. Um, in 2015, there was a team that sort of resurrected Brontosaurus um, and has been making a case, and they've published on this, that Apatosaurus excelsius could be considered a different enough from Apatosaurus ajax, and if it is a different species, they want to rename it entirely to Brontosaurus, along with two other Apatosaurus species. So huh. the debate continues as to whether or not Brontosaurus is a valid <laughs> wow. dinosaur taxon. And it, that is kind of insane. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, huh. there's a similar thing that's gone on to a lesser extent with um, Taurosaurus, great dinosaur name, and yes. Triceratops. Uh, oh, okay. 
And whether or not Taurosaurus is the, like, final form of Triceratops. Right, it's in its evolution, of course. Right. Like, it, like in Pokemon. Literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. no, I, Oh, my God. So, it's... the, uh, but that one, I think, the, the pendulum is swinging more t- in favor of them being separate species. They are very different. They have very different shaped skulls, and they're found in different places. So, mm. we probably will see a resurgence in... Uh, Taurosaurus, and there's already being um, Triceratops adults that are being found that do not have the Taurosaurus gotcha. skull. So it, it's like, at what point does this animal grow two giant holes in, it, in the back of its throat? <laughs> right, right before it dies. That's what it happened. <laughs> Conveniently. Yeah, so oh this stuff is ongoing, but it's really interesting that you can have just like dinosaurs that disappear uh in their own right just like yeah. their, their names no longer uh no longer uh work even if they are recognizable right that is really fascinating and kind of crazy when you think about it yeah. like especially if it's been going on for so long and then all of a sudden it's like nope canceled gotta get rid of them <laughs> it's too many thin yeah. it out dinosaur dead names <laughs> uh yeah that is oh geez um yeah, no, this is, like, really fascinating, though. I had no idea about any of this. And also, I th- it was very helpful having your clarification of, you know, the, even the definition of species and sort of the nuance to that conversation, yeah. even beyond dinosaurs, because I think it's something that I've been always lost on. And, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I hadn't studied science. What? I did very poorly. And it, you, I, I mean, I work <laughs> in a museum. I'm in the history department and art. Uh <laughs> Zan is the resident uh, science science and paleontology expert here. Not you know, a scientist either. It's, it's you know things more than I do. I I didn't. I, I don't know. It's it's always been the. I I'm a science enthusiast. I think is what I like to classify myself as. Mm. But um, but it, it's just it's always fascinating to see because I think it's how we come to be as humans, but also how animals have taken their form throughout history, is very fascinating and even that that classification that we have mm-hmm. as an or as a way to actually just have order to things i feel like just start to understand and go forward mm-hmm. it's always been very fascinating but i hadn't quite understood uh why so now i feel like i have a stronger understanding yeah, well, and i hope all like, of you it's do like too. jazz it's like you learn yeah. the structures then you learn how it kind of breaks down exactly it's yeah music theory and all i mean i hope everybody else here as well has a stronger understanding on this after hearing us talk about it for a while i do have a question though and maybe mm-hmm. this can be something that dove tells us all you cannot here. lick the dinosaurs that wasn't really my question but it's good to know everybody write that mm-hmm. down um but if we found like a cryptid skeleton or fossil, mm. like Bigfoot or Skunk Ape, mm-hmm. would I mean? Let's actually take those as an example because they're more in the sort of you know hominid ape side of this. Okay, would would that unlock a whole new like subsection of mammal or species or kind of like adjacent to mm. what we are, or like would it if if something were like that to happen, would that mess with the classification enough for scientists to have to revisit it? Or would it really just not matter? Um, well, I, I I don't think it would necessarily shock us to our core. I, I think mm. there would be a question of where 
those animals have been hiding. But let's say let's say we did find <laughs> it. We I guess we let's name it right now. We could call right. it like there is Gigantopithecus. Um, Very cool name. Yeah. Yes. I believe they lived in Asia, but let's say they 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 crossed into North America and we got, you know, Gigantopithecus uh, Columbia, you know. Ooh. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Canadensis so, or something. So it would yeah. just work in itself into that kind of camp in a sense where it would just yeah. continue on. Well, it would depend if it was... Um, if it was the same species as Gigantopithecus, um, if it was its own thing, I guess for a lot of people for Bigfoot, they there's some desire for it to be a hominid because of the way it walks. Um, so it would theoretically be closer to us than even, um, you know, a gorilla or something. Right. So, right. I mean, we would we could name it, you know, if it was in our genus Homo with us, uh, you know, if you uh, I don't know, Homo Sasquatchy, okay, or something. All right, uh, we can workshop it for sure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then you could have uh, the 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 subspecies for the skunk ape, right? Uh, so you could have it like Homo Sasquatch. Uh, floridensis Ooh, yeah okay that's fun that, that rolls off nicely yeah yeah it could it could be its own subspecies okay. but you know it would fit into this i mean because this is this is kind of the beauty of these things like the periodic table of elements where i think these structures that uh that let us organize these things allow for additional discoveries i think yeah. this is sort of the crucial thing to science and why you know we should uh understand why science changes as time goes mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. is that these things are meant to be expanded upon and to 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 be you know have better refined uh, understandings of these theories, you know, because at this point, like, like evolution is very robustly understood as, as a scientific theory that anything that we find at this point, it doesn't really do anything to prove it as much as it does, um, better our understanding of how it happened. Right. Uh, so the discovery of, uh, you know, even, even if you found, the Loch Ness monster, it or Mokili Mumbembe, you know, right? As much as creationists want to, it's <sighs> not like it's inex. It, it's not like it's inexplicable, right? Um, that the science could grow to accommodate that because there's been a lot of animals discovered that were thought to just be stories at first. Gorillas, uh, mm. pretty famously, you know when. European explorers first described them uh, were thought to be a myth. Uh, oh, you know, the, Darwin famously didn't believe that the platypus was real when uh, <laughs> he was first sent a specimen. And, and then he said, Perry, the platypus. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to. Yeah. I can't. Oh, God. Um, but, you know, that's like. Uh, but, the, you know, Darwin was having to sift through all of the. Uh, weasel hydras that right. German scientists and German <laughs> mayors were sending him. 
you know, to authenticate. <laughs> I've been yeah. vindicated. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, the platypus does kind of look like a fake animal when you think about it. Like it just doesn't seem real, and then it is. And it, yeah, but but the science can accommodate back, something. For sure, as, it, it's proof that the that the theory is sound enough to accommodate something as as bizarre as the platypus. And you know, yeah, now yeah. we understand that you know there are other ways for genes to change and transfer beyond just reproduction. Um, sure, we understand you know behavioral uh, evolution better. We understand a lot of things better, but it all still fits into this theory. Yeah, and science just, we, we keep learning from it, and it just constantly, it moves forward, which I think mm-hmm. is always really exciting, and because of learned knowledge in this way, mm-hmm. um, which is nice, and a little relaxing slightly, that there can, it also allows for things to be uh, ever-changing in that way, right? Which, if so, like, just if something else gets discovered, there becomes that excitement, and the science is backed up. Rather yeah. than, you know, a very specific certainty on how everything happened and no one can challenge it because if we challenge it, therefore it all falls apart. Yeah. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I don't think I even have to say it at this point. So right. I, I, I think that's one of the really exciting things at play here. And again, why I become enthusiastic about science while understanding it further. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think having these type of conversations and allowing for this to be explained a bit more Outside of sometimes school, not that school's bad, but like just biology 101 gets a little cut and dry sometimes where I feel like this has always been the thing I've been more excited about when it comes to animals and species and why. So Mm. uh, thank you, Zan, for bringing this knowledge to the museum. Love getting to talk about it. Oh, well, I'm glad. Definitely Mm -hmm. learned a lot. I'm really excited about it now um, because like I said, I had no idea about any of this. So it was really exciting to hear and- now I get to say it to other people, which is really the point here. <laughs> this is just learn things and then regurgitate them to others at a dinner conversation. Right. So. Well, could you also ask them about all my dead ladybugs, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll bring that up. That is a very strange encounter. <laughs> what does so, this mean? What does it mean? Yeah. Who well, cursed speaking, you? Speaking of what does this mean, it's time for Stick It or Ticket. So what do you got for us, Zan? Um, I have a very curious one. Uh, this was while driving to Boston. Uh, okay. This car had a lot of bumper stickers, but I was really fascinated by the proximity of these two. It was <laughs> a, uh, it, they seemed to like be clustered together. Like there was some meaning that I was supposed to infer uh, from that. And it was uh, a very faded sticker of Yosemite Sam with his guns drawn. And then okay. underneath the got milk sticker. <laughs> Ain't no way got, that is got milk. Got milk. <laughs> <laughs> he just shoots guns up in the air. He's really enthusiastic about drinking milk and getting that potassium. Uh, or maybe or calcium, Yosem- Yosemite Sam. He's got like you know he's he's got a thing for milk. I guess. Mm, probably does. Mm. Okay, that's very good. That is very entertaining. Um, I saw I saw a bunch of bumper stickers on my way to and from work uh, the past weeks, but. One that stuck out to me was a a very large, like five by five inch sticker. So this was like a big, you know, win- one of those window stickers, and it said "Plumber's Wife" on a toilet, <laughs> and it was on a toilet, like a white silhouette of a toilet, and then the plumber's wife like cut through it as the type. And I'm 
It's kind of well, haunts obvi- me. Obviously, we support our tradespeople. Yeah, obviously, but is that how we brand it? Like, why not something else? I don't know. <laughs> like a plunger, or like it's a bit. It is like very she's plumber. Ominous. Plumber. She's the plumbing queen. That's her throne. <laughs> yeah, but that's where I was like, it's just, it's like. I don't know. It was like just admitting like this is the point in marriage and also here's a toilet. It was very, very, you know, uh, uh, basically designed. But honestly, I, I, I guess for me, I'm wondering like, why put this on your window? But, eh, you know, mm-hmm, plumbers, mm-hmm. plumber representation, I guess. Yes. Ah, oh, good. <laughs> Maybe it's good. an advertisement, though. It might be an advertisement. Oh, to, is this to hire their plumber? That's that's uh, this person's band. Plumber's wife. Oh, it could be actually. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I guess so. I mean, there's there there might be some romantic ballad that you could write. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, you know, it's what these bumper stickers leave us with—just more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm. I'm very glad that we've added this segment. It's. Uh, it's. I, I look forward to it. Uh, every every week. Oh, same here. Next, uh, we were going to talk about uh, we. <laughs> you could file this under uncanny corrections, but we uh, forgot to do our recommendations last week, which we are trying to make more a part we of did. this. That's true. Uh, so, Joe, what do you have that you've been uh, reading, watching, or listening to that you'd like to uh, give a give a uh, mm-hmm. recommendation, a qualified endorsement? Well, I have been. Well, I guess just to start here, I finished reading Moby Dick recently, and I do give that an endorsement and recommend reading, although it is slightly challenging. Uh, but two I think it's flippers up. Two. <laughs> I believe I gave it a four out of five uh, stars or, or Starbucks, maybe. Uh, oh, yeah, there it is on Goodreads. But yeah, I, I recommend it. I think it was a really worth the read, and I've been thinking about it a lot. But I've also been able to go and pick up the last book in the series of Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend. I highly, highly, highly recommend everybody read those books. They are amazing. She goes into so many small details on these characters' lives in Naples, Italy, and beyond, and it is just one of the best works of fiction I've ever read. And I take it from someone who doesn't like reading trilogies or series. These are four books. Mm. So I don't do that. So if I'm doing it, (laughs) <laughs> it's probably very good. And I also recommend the TV show if you don't really feel like reading or have time. It is on HBO Max, I believe, and is very or HBO and HBO Max. It's very, very good. And I've also been watching uh, the newest season of Rami, season three, about halfway through, and that has been very interesting as well. So I recommend checking mm-hmm. those uh, those things out. Allison was watching that in bed next to me, and I think I just kind of... Uh, I. I I was left with a lot of questions as to what was going on. In Rami? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. The, some of those episodes are wild. It's it's very yeah. good, but oh man. Yeah, no, I, I'm intrigued, but I will have to, uh, I will, I'm sure I'll have to watch it one day. Yeah, um, it's worth a watch. As far as me, um, let's see. Uh, I've, um, I've started a little show that I'm not sure many people have heard of. Uh, it's, uh, on HBO, little, little independent series, a little older, but, uh, I I think I'm on to something. It's called The Sopranos. Oh, man. Well. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Gabba Cool. Nice. Nice one. Oh, my gosh. It is. That is such a fantastic show. 
I, I really do like it, and I'm sure I will be yes. talking more about it as time goes on. Um, but to keep things kind of prehistoric-themed, uh, I found this record in a thrift store, and, oh. you know, since it was $5, I was like, sure, I'll get that. Um, and the cover really sold me uh, because it was <laughs> it had a pteranodon on it. Oh. Uh, and it was uh, it was Dinosaur Swamps by The Flock. Uh, and actually it is, uh, I believe from a painting of some pterosaurs, uh, from the Museum of Natural History's, uh, prehistoric, uh, section, uh, and the music actually is pretty fun. Uh, it's, you know, some good, like, uh, kind of early seventies psychedelic rock, uh, some bluesy jams, some folk music. It's a cool album if you want uh, just some vintage vibes, good drive-in music. All right. Uh, can get, uh, if you're someone that like gets stressed out by, uh, <laughs> you know, just kind of jam rock, maybe not. But if you are into that kind of thing uh, and you want to hear some classics like Big Bird, uh, I would check out Dinosaur Swamps by The Flock. The album art is, uh, is great. Find it in your local thrift store. Nice. That's a good wreck. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, if you are if you have been enjoying the Uncanny County Museum and want to uh, give us some support on uh, Patreon, uh, there are uh, lots of great affordable tiers and lots of great Mm -hmm, uh, rewards mm -hmm. at every level. Um, If you are unable to support us monetarily, you can write into us at uh, uncannycountymuseum at gmail.com. Uh, we are happy to uh, read your uh, prompts or questions uh, for discussion. Um, and another free way to support us is to give us a rating and review on Spotify yes. Yes, or yes. Apple Podcasts. That w- I almost said iTunes. <laughs> uh, if you still have iTunes, you know, do that too. Yeah, sure. Um, but we would really, really appreciate those reviews. Um Let's see. What else is going on with you, Joe? What's going on outside of the museum after hours? Uh, not too terribly much at the moment. I believe, hopefully, my work's going to be shown at the uh. Let me get the name of this because it's in Polish. The fifth, the In and Out Festival, the fifteenth In and Out Festival in uh Poland. It's a, on design and moving image, and I got selected as one at, or I got selected amongst twenty other artists. I'm one of twenty. Uh, with my work when light takes form. So I um, think that's in December, but not sure yet. So that's been pretty exciting. I'm seeing where that takes me. And hey. also I have some, I have my album biomes on available for streaming, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, pretty much everywhere. So feel free to check that out. I also have some hopefully more music coming out, but given how long biomes took me, Probably 2023, realistically, <laughs> but I'm still making things, so I won't just let that be my one thing I make. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's about it right now. Other things happening in the periphery, but until then, you know, I'll let you know. Uh, how about you, Zan? What do you got going on? Um, I've got some work up right now for the Fire and Ice show at the Hyde Park Artist Collective. Uh, you can go check it out there. And um, yeah, it's open... Uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, and uh, I will be sitting there uh, as a docent two times a month, so if you show up, you might oh, see nice. me there. 
Um, fun, fun, fun. Yeah, nothing else too concrete to announce just yet. I've got my uh, art, as usual, uh, at zanpeters.com. You can check that out there. Uh, if you want to find the uh, museum after hours, is at Uncanny Museum on Twitter and at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. If you want to find me after hours, I am at Xanosaurus on Instagram. And I'm at Joe Semino Art on Instagram. And also, I wanted to give a quick shout out, Zan, happy birthday, which oh, happened, thank you. obviously. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, of course, of course. I hope it was a great day. Oh, no, and- it was great. I, w- I was in New York. And you know what? I was walking there. Oh, not very nice. Very nice. I also <laughs> wanted to give uh, a shout out that I feel like we hadn't done before, but to uh, at Dinosaur Comics on their new book. Oh. Did you know Dino Hell Creek? So yes. check that out. Also, uh, mm-hmm. I think he plugged it on here when he visited the museum. So wanted to give a shout out to that as well. Yeah. And um, actually, it, another thing that i wanted to shout out was uh a if you enjoy what we do here uh i would really like to recommend the common descent podcast uh they talk a lot of uh natural history and stuff and they actually have a really great series going on right now um uh for the uh spooky season where they talk about the spookulative speculative uh evolution They had a very, very cool. entertaining episode on owl bears, uh, but I would Ooh, recommend checking out that podcast, uh, the Common Descent podcast. Nice, yeah, great. From the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters, and I've been Joe Semino. Bye. Bye.